Good morning. I keep thinking we want a powerful display of God, don't we? We should really go for a powerful display of God. You know, I, I believe in living with him every day. I was outside Asda. I said, I want a meaningful meeting when I go in there. And as I walk around, I keep saying, we need a display. You know, perhaps a sudden bout of cold snow that kills it dead. You know, we want, should we agree that we want to see God do something? Absolutely intervene in this miraculous. Shall we do that? We want to see you do something absolutely miraculous for us. You are our mighty God. You are our strong deliverer. You are the only one we can go to at any time, in any need, and you always show up. God, you have this whole world under wraps. You are sovereign and under control. And we pray that though the world seems to be in a spin, you are not. Ground us so that we're not fearful, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to go back to Exodus 34, folks, if you could stick that up. Um, Very interesting when I was reading this again, that actually it is from Exodus 20, which is the words of God, and Exodus 20 is even fuller. But God is actually saying again to Moses what he is like, who he is. This is his name. This is his nature. And we must get to know the God of the Bible. Because this God is the God who redeems, who saves, who heals. And we can then start to really rely on his character. And that is really essential. And the other thing about coming out of our favorite scriptures, and we all have favorite scriptures, we all have favorite scriptures. I love Psalm 91. If we're not careful, we stick in there and we get stuck in there. And that becomes our theology. And guess what? We think that God is like us. And you've got to understand that we can still have a very perverse way of thinking about God. So we, God is much better than we could ever imagine. And his faithful love, this his said that we looked at last week, is that, that he protects his faithful love to make sure we get it. And that's awesome. He is making sure that we get it this morning. Okay, so we're going to get it this morning. Rely on him. The thing that really surprised me when I looked at this is forgiveness didn't start with Jesus. Forgiveness is a theme that runs through the whole Bible, but it goes from Genesis to the New Testament. And actually the word forgive forgiveness is actually mentioned 658 times before you get to the New Testament. So we are in danger of thinking that Jesus just rocks up like the new boy on the block, you know, and says, oh, forgive them all, forgive them all. Actually, God is a forgiving God. And this word forgive carries a sense. And this is awesome. Listen to this. If it doesn't remind you of Jesus, listen to this. The word forgives is uh, nase. It looks like nasa. So it's nase. The word forgive carries a sense to lift up or to carry or to take away. Awesome. So when Jesus was lifted up, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men. He lifted up our sin upon his shoulders. Whoa. He lifted up. He carried our sins, as Isaiah says. He carried our sins away. He took the sin of the whole world in the language of John the Baptist. Here comes a lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So this morning's talk is about forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And these three Words, concepts, 
make up the brokenness of the whole fallen culture. Let's have a look at these words. Wickedness covers all bad behavior. I'm always repenting of wickedness. I'm always repenting of wickedness because it, co- it, it covers a bad attitude when you cut somebody up on the road right to, through to genocide. It's that inclusive. It's that inclusive. It's that big. Rebellion is a legal word, which means to break God's laws. Sin is, wasn't so much a moral word. I so often miss the mark. Didn't intend to, just failed to do the right thing. Wasn't a, wasn't a wicked motive in that case. I just missed the mark. So God forgives all sin of all shapes and all sizes. We tend to grade it and think some sin's worse than others, and some does have deeper ramifications, like sin against your body, but it's all the same. He is a forgiving God, and he longs to forgive. And if you get this sense in the Old Testament that he longs to forgive, longs to show how compassionate he is, slow to anger, abounding in love, you see it fulfilled and culminating in the death of Christ. Because he wanted to forgive. And Jesus wanted to go to the cross for the joy set before him. This was not something we had to screw out of him. He lovingly wanted to pour out his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his abounding mercy on his creatures of whom I am one. And so are you. So it's his nature. And David was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? And I I think we ought to get this, you know. Don't let's be sentimental. When we appeal to God, let us appeal to God on his nature. Not on my feelings. We can be sure about his nature. This is what David says after he's been found out with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. According to your unfailing love. And Micah, Micah 7 says this, it says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight, delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I... I found myself in uh, a situation where I had a stroke on the night and the eve of my daughter's wedding and I had a choice. I knew the choice was go and put yourself into hospital and ruin your daughter's wedding or stick it out. Stick it out with God and be okay. Symptoms got worse and worse and worse and by the time they'd all gone for dinner, I'd lost the use of my arm and my leg and I was dribbling. I lifted up my arm. I I said, I'll go well with you. I I recited Psalm 23. The next morning, I was okay, extremely tired. Went to the doctors, was put through some tests. I was sitting in the corridor waiting for these four tests. MRI, carotid artery, heart echo, bloods and things like that. And I remember getting my head down. I lived with a father who had TB. Never caught it, but I lived with him who had TB. And I got my head down, and all I can say, and I could cry now when I think about it, I touched him. I touched him. I said, as I watched these white coats going back and forth, I never signed up for this. I never signed up for this. You're my God. You're my God. 
you take care of me in the midst of this hospital, in the midst of whatever they would say about my age, whatever. You, you, you are my loving God. All those tests proved to be absolutely brilliant. I had the healthy heart of a young woman, 40-year-old, whatever. I had a fantastic carotid artery. I had no sign of lesion on my brain. And the doctor was adamant that I'd had a stroke. When you find out who God is, don't go on your sentimentality. Oh, I've tired and I've read my Bible and I've sacrificed. Don't do that. Press into who he is. You are a compassionate God. You are a loving God. You long to show mercy. Be merciful to me. That's how I pray for my children. Don't let them go to hell. Don't let them go to hell. You are a forgiving God. You can pray on the basis of who he is. That's what this teaching is all about. And David knew how to pray. He knew how to pray. He knew how to get forgiveness. And he was cleansed from all his sin. Then you get to this yet, yet. That word yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It could be, could mean at the same time. As the same time that the Lord is compassionate and a gracious God and slow to anger, yet at the same time, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And you wouldn't want him to. Anybody who's come to the cross knows you've escaped that punishment. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't let people off the hook. That wouldn't be a God you would want. And that's not the basis on which you're praying. You're praying for his mercy. You're praying on the basis of who he is. God is just. And we know there are many, many, many people that no matter how many good things God does for them, how many miracles they see, how many times he bails them out, they still refuse to bow the knee. They still refuse to change their ways. They still refuse to come into his grace and his compassion and his mercy. They, in the end, deserve to be judged. That's a sadness, but it's a truth. It's a truth. You can't keep on and on and on extending that arm of fellowship when they keep on saying, no, 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 no. We were in school for seven lessons last week, and the heartache is that children have already decided in their massive 11 years that there is no God. And he's a myth. That's a tragedy. It, um, God is a just God, and we feel that when we know what we've escaped, when we know the punishment we've escaped, we feel that justice. And God's justice is a good thing because his goal is a world without sin, which we will be part of when he makes the new heavens and the new earth. No gossip, no slander, no hatred, no discord, no factions, no jealousy, no murder, no disobedience. God's agenda is to have a world set free from injustice. Okay. So we get to the part where he says he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. This is a deeper subject than I'm going to make it. <laughs> so feel free to search out John Mark Comer and his video and he'll explain it very well. I've heard it several times. I still can't actually put it into words. But I think this is the point he's making and this is the point that God is making. This has to be taken on balance because we have scriptures that says, when it says 
punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents. We have to have an understanding when you see parallels and when you see things that could be contradictory. So Deuteronomy 24 is the same author, and yet it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers, each is to die for their own sin. And Jeremiah 17 says, verse 10, you reward each person according to their conduct. So what does it mean this, they will punish the children to the third and fourth generation? Well, there's two layers to it. And I think this is really interesting. The first is that children, now don't get upset about this. Children do suffer as a result of their parents' sin. They do. Think of anything where parents fail to protect, love, care, and nurture for their children. Ask any child of divorced parents and they will tell you that they suffer because of that. For whatever reasons, if parents are not there, and, and it's not just their sin, it's sin in the world. It's, I, I can't just think it's just the sin that we do, it's the sin in the world. For example, if parents are suddenly killed in an airplane crash and the parents are left, the children are left as orphans, that's sin in the world, isn't it? That's destruction in the world. But we've got to face up to what sin is like. If we're really going to be saved, if we're really going to have a fear of God, we've got to understand that our behaviour, our children get our behaviour. The best thing we can give our children is our character. Is our character. And our commitment to Christ and our faithfulness to him. My children knew that don't bother to ask me to go to anything on a Sunday. I will not go to your church parade. I will not go to your brownie assembly. I will not do that. I will go to church and you will come to church with me. And you will tell them that as well. I had to make a commitment that if I didn't put God first, God would always be moved around. And they were going to know that I believed in Jesus, even if I was a naff mom. And I was going to put him first, and I was going to say he's first, kids. He comes first. You ain't going to no Sikh temple. You ain't going, because I don't want you there. So just, that's it. So children, for whatever reasons, do suffer as a result of, I can say, our sin or their parents' sin. And that's where you get that sense of punishing the children for the sin of the parents. Because almost that endemic sin in the parents, uh, and sometimes not their fault, but, but they will then suffer those consequences and very often be the same. If, you know, in the Nicky Gumbel thing, if you trace people, you know, if you've got... And, and it breaks with Jesus. But if you've got a, a grandfather that was a thief, very often the father is a thief and so on. You know, I, it, it does move down generations. But Christ intercepts that and can stop that. So the most important thing we can do is give our children our characters and our commitment and faithfulness to God. The second layer is God will continue to punish sin in each and every generation. So if way back your father was an idolater, you know, then very often, if then if the son is an idolater, the father will be uh, punished, the son will be punished. And then if it goes on down the line, each generation for that sin will be punished. 
that person will be punished. And so it goes on that each one then will get according to their deeds. And we were teaching this week about multiculturalism, but culture changes and moves around. But this is the real deal, you know. Sin has never changed since the word go. It's never changed. It dresses differently, but it's never, it's, it's never changed. Sin doesn't change and has never changed. God will punish sin in each generation. So we have this text showing love to thousands. Now, it doesn't say that here, but it takes it from Exodus in the law. If I look at Exodus 20, very interesting, um, that when God says in verse 4 of chapter 20, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, da 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 da. For I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third or fourth generation and those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations who are those who love me and keep my commandments. And that's the deal. I want us to see something that's reiterated in, in the law. And actually, it wasn't called the law, really, or the Ten Commandments. It was called the words of God. That here we have, if you can imagine a scale, we have a scale where he will punish to the third and fourth generation. But over here, he will show mercy and forgiveness to a thousand generations. And that's the deal. He wants us to see that in contrast, he wants to show mercy to thousands and thousands of people. Not just a select few. He wants to show mercy. That's his character. So justice, as far as the third and fourth generations are concerned, are to the third and fourth generation. But mercy, where mercy is concerned, it stretches out to thousands. And that's how we pray for our kids. Be merciful. Because mercy triumphs over judgment, doesn't it? Now, let's go to Numbers 14. And I don't know about you, if you've ever read Genesis right the way through and you got through, you get sick and tired of the people's rebellion. A bit like God must get sick and tired of me sometimes. You get sick and tired of the rebellion of the Israelites. It doesn't matter what God does for them. It doesn't matter how God shows his mercy. They are continually and perpetually disobedient. And it makes for tiresome reading. So here we've got here, they've been brought out of Egypt and slavery through the Red Sea. They've seen the amazing hand of God. Just imagine being in Goshen when, when it's light where they are and blackness you can feel all around you. Why do we so quickly forget the things that God does. Why, why is that, that we can so easily forget what he does? They've experienced his miracles and they're going to rebel again. We've got the two spies that have gone out and come back and said, we can take the land, their protection is gone. And they say, no, we're scared. So I'm picking it up from Numbers 14, 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then that's Caleb and Joshua. And they're thinking of stoning the leaders. Uh, they say just before that, their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole assembly 
talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. If Moses had, had at all had any sense of ego, it could have come here. But he had none. He is like Jesus. He intercedes. And, it's, and I think it's deeper than just what it sounds that he starts by saying, then the Egyptians will hear about it. I think he knows that God is all-powerful and he knows what God has done and he does not want his reputation or for anyone to misunderstand the very nature and purposes of God. And this is what Moses says, verse 13 of chapter 14, Numbers. Then the Egyptians will hear about it by your power. You brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people. And that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face. You're real. God, you're real. Don't do this. That your cloud stays over them. And that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on earth. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's reminding him of what he has said to him. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation in accordance with your great love. In accordance with your great love. In accordance with your great love. Forgive the sin of these people. Amazing. Jesus is right in here. Just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me that ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised. Very, very, very painful. Very brutal word, this. Nevertheless, nevertheless. Israel has a history from Genesis to this chapter of complete and utter disobedience. But God is about to wipe these people out. And I think this is what we must get out of this. I think this is really important. I hear slick Christians rattle off, rattle off scriptures, but I want us to know this. We are pressing into a person, not a formula. When I say pray according to his truth, that's still not a formula. When I said in that waiting room, I didn't sign up for this, that's not in the Bible. I was crying out to God, I'm different, I'm saved, you're my God, you're my father. You wouldn't hurt me, you wouldn't harm me. I'm pressing into a person, not into a formula. 
You can recite scriptures, and that's par excellence, and we should learn them. The word of God, he said the word above his name. The word of God is awesome. But you must have your heart and your motivation joined with that word and not think that it's a formula. And don't, don't dish out formulas to other people about God. He's not a formula. He's a person. He goes to bed with you. He goes to the toilet with you. He goes in the shower with you. He drives in a car with you. He, li he lives in you. In him we live and move and have our being, says Acts 17, verse 28. You can't get away from him. You can't make your bed in the depths or go to the highest heavens. He's a person. Talk to him as a person. The best prayer is, oh, God, I've screwed up help. Oh, God, help. God, help. And mean it. And mean it. Mean it with all your heart. He wants, and verse 31 says he wants to bring them to enjoy the land. He wants those who have not sinned to enjoy the land. So God is forgiving. Sin is not forgiving. Sin is not compassionate. And sin is not merciful. Will God forgive us when we turn to him? Yes, yes, yes. But we have to understand this. This is a big deal. We have to understand one thing. While we struggle with our sin, we are missing out on blessings. Sin will always rob us of a blessing. And while we think that we're struggling with one little area of sin, don't be fooled. There's, it's got tendrils. We've got other areas that are attached to that. So we've got to have the same attitude about sin that God has about sin. About our selfishness, about our unwillingness to love him, to worship him, to, to give him all that we have. We miss out. Don't misunderstand this. Sin has consequences. If we mess around with our sexuality, sleep around, watch what's wrong, abuse our bodies in any way, God will forgive us. But we will suffer the consequences of that. And we can't help it. Sin has its own consequences locked in. So God takes sin seriously and we should take sin seriously. And this, I found this really, really good. And I'll give the credit to John Mark Cromer for this. I thought this was amazing. Sometimes we struggle with sin and we think it's a self-control issue. But actually, it's a faith issue. Do we want to live like the Bible says or not? Do we keep making excuses of why we do it? Well, it's my past. Well, your past is gone. Years ago, and the, good, the old days were not better, years ago, we had a, very much a theology of come to the cross, come to the cross and have this divine exchange. Wrestle with your sin till you get hold of the crucified Christ and come out victorious. And, and it's all right, that, it's all right, today's all right. But now we have things like Elijah House and Sozo and theotherapy and things like that now they're all the same they will lead you back to the cross so they will lead you back to the cross but I think what's it and and it's excellent absolutely par excellent but what I think is interesting the way that Christian culture changes in that when I was growing up and when I went to the Pentecostal church it was that you get out of your sin at the cross now I needed sozos and I needed Elijah house and I needed all those things I'm not saying one one takes the place of another. But don't let's discount the power of you struggling with your sin at the cross. That's all I'd say. Don't make it a sort of almost like an excuse that if you get the right counselling, you'll get the right result. Do you see what I'm saying? Get the right counselling. Absolutely. Get all the counselling you can. Get all the prayer you can. But do something yourself. Fast yourself. Get hold of the cross for yourself. Because it, it, 
don't wait until somebody else does something for you. Jesus is here for me. And um, I remember struggling with something once. And I, this was a very, another very intimate time with Jesus. And I was trying to tell a friend how I was struggling with something that God had shown me about a very serious sin I'd committed. And I was trying to tell a friend and she was giggling because her husband was tickling her. And I couldn't tell her and, you know, she was, she was busy. I just bowed my head and I said, Jesus, this is so painful. And he said, I know. I know. See, we think that we struggle with sin on our own. And this is not in the notes. But we don't struggle with sin on our own. We struggle with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to birth Jesus in us all the time. You know, Jackie Pulliger says, you know, God might have to break your heart for you to love others. And he might have to go on breaking your heart so that you go on loving others. And that is a part of being a Christian. It's not I'll get the right course, get the right, get the right, uh, you know, go on the right course and I'll come out. I'll be all right. You've still got to do business with your sin. You've got to do it because you know, you know yourself. And you, we've got to be people like that. It's not just overcoming temptation. It's not just about self-control. It's about faith. Do we believe that Jesus Christ can deliver us from the evil one? And will we, will we seek him and get hold of his coattail until we get it? Now, this sounds as if it's incongruous, but now I'm going to slip to Matthew 18. And I'm not going to do the whole story, but this is really, really wonderful. I think it's wonderful. So who knows the story of the unmerciful servant? Obviously, some people don't here. Okay, but most do. You have a story in Matthew 18 where Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, he says, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Now, this is interesting because the rabbi would say, uh, the rabbi would say three times. Peter wants to say something perfect. He says seven times. And Jesus blows it out the water and says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. But I want to be very quick, but I want to show you something very powerful that will wrap this up for us. Because we can think we know a scripture and then miss some of the deeper points to it. This is what hit me about this. So then Jesus tells a story, all right? The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all he had, be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant and said, you wicked servant, 
I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then, says Jesus, meek and mild, not, he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Now, I've spent a good deal of time showing from the scriptures that our God is a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy, that poured all his wrath on himself because it was Christ, it was God in Christ reconciling the world. He personally took the whole weight of the world's sin. He showed that abounding love that incredible genera- that incredible mercy to thousands upon thousands that he would show it to. And then he tells this story in the New Testament. And we think that we get scot-free and we do anything we like. Not so. Not so. Not so. This is a scripture about Christians. The first servant owed so much that it was impossible totally impossible to pay it back. When he said, be patient with me, it wouldn't have mattered how patient it was. He could never, never, never have paid that debt. That is you and me. Let me say it again. That is you and me. There is no payment that you have in your wherewithal to go to God and say, look, you've got to let me off. You cannot pay. I cannot pay the debt I owe. I've murdered. And so are many of you. You cannot get forgiveness by any other route than the Lord Jesus Christ dying for you in your stead, paying your punishment on that cross. That is the gospel. And if we don't become people of the cross that remember that, what we will want is mercy for ourselves and judgment for those who have hurt us. And we cannot stay wrong with anyone. We cannot ever afford to withhold forgiveness from anyone at all. And I'm talking about minor offences where you walk out the room and your daughter hasn't said something to you. Or you get the wrong answer. Or somebody doesn't give you a hug. Or somebody gives you a, you know, says something that really upsets you. You cannot do it, brothers and sisters. Why? Because Jesus said this. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, you will end up tortured. You will end up with this heaviness because you will move yourself literally out of grace into darkness. You will remove yourself out of my covering into judgment. Because now you're becoming the judge. We are people of the cross. We are people who have found... And it's so easy. I do it all the time. Come on. Can you put your hand up if you do it? You, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, and know what you've done wrong and got forgiven for. And yet you pinpoint somebody else's misdemeanor. Jesus said it's like having, you know, a plank in your own eye and looking for the speck in somebody else's. And this makes us very, very, very free people because we've got to get to the bottom of where the offence is and we must release people. We must release people. Jesus said, I cancelled all that impossible debt of yours as you begged me to. Shouldn't you have been like me, 
your heavenly Father, slow to anger, abounding in love, merciful, compassionate. Shouldn't you have been like me? If you don't do this, if you don't do this, brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that I will have to hand you over to the jailer and the jailer will hand you over to the torturer and the torturer will hand you, put you into jail and you will not get out until you pay the last penny. Brothers and sisters, we have an awesome God and we should fear him in a right, loving, respectful way that I can turn to him anywhere I am, a car park space, somebody sitting next to somebody coughing the guts up and say, oh, I love you, Jesus, help me. I, I, anything, I can say anything to God. I didn't sign up for this. Oh, God, I didn't sign up for this. You've got to come and help me. You can say anything you like to God, mostly in any way it comes out. But what you cannot do is you cannot withhold forgiveness from somebody else. That is the story of this morning. That is the lesson for us today that passed in front of Moses, and this is Christ, this is the Holy Spirit who lives in us, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. There is a judgment within sin. There is a consequence to sin, even as Christians when we sin. But I want to tell you now that Jesus has complete freedom for us, loves us completely, adores us, wants the best for us, never condemns us, always wants to draw us back. Psalm 91 always wants to draw us back under his protection. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest secure. There is no rest for the wicked, but there is for the righteous. Can I call on you to check out your relationships? Are you good with all your sons and daughters? Are you good with all your sons and daughters' wives? Are you good with everybody in church? Are you good with your husband? Are you good with your kids? Because it's an awesome salvation. And the more you treat it as awesome, the more respect you have for your salvation, the greater your depth of understanding will be. Can I pray?